0: Hi, I'm Lee Blancett. Welcome to Proximity Health's second podcast looking at oncology management within integrated delivery networks. Driving treatment selection across a wide network of sites is a pivotal capability for IDNs. As Medicare and commercial reimbursement moves toward value-based approaches, these institutions must be able to ensure that their providers are using best practices and delivering a consistently high level of quality across all of their treatment sites. In this podcast, we speak with an oncology pharmacy leader in a large, highly integrated IDN. We'll discuss their clinical management goals, the processes employed to develop treatment pathways, and the strategies they use to encourage oncologist adherence to these pathways. Thank you for joining us today. We have a series of questions for you around how your organization manages cancer drugs across its network. To begin with, can you tell me how your IDN actually organizes cancer services? Do you have a network-wide service line?
1: Uh, yes, cancer services are network-wide across the system.
0: And who actually manages this? Is there a service line director at the top level of the system?
1: Correct. There's an institute director and administrator, and then there are regional administrators as well.
0: When you say institute, do you operate the institute as a separate legal entity, or is this simply part of the overall integrated delivery network?
1: Part of the same entity, but just a different division
0: of the IDN itself. Okay. And when you say you have one director managing across the entire network, how much autonomy do you actually allow for the people in the um, more geographically dispersed entities?
1: So at a high level, we do expect that folks are following our pathways or guidelines where appropriate, as well as following the EMR formulary system. But there is some autonomy inside of that framework to make some individual decisions or change kind of protocols based upon position preference. And
0: outside institutions, and does reach out to you, is this typically just for relationship in oncology, or is this more comprehensive? Would it extend across additional disease areas?
1: Uh, usually it's just oncology at this point. Um, it, it can be in other areas. Most of what I focus on is in this space, so it's mostly just on the cancer side.
0: And we do look at your network-wide service line. Is the director located in the, the main facility, or are they located in one of the satellites?
1: They're located at the
0: main academic medical center. And is that individual a business person or a pharmacist or a physician?
1: It's a physician leader, and there's also a finance kind of business administrator that it partners with the physician leadership.
0: Okay. And how does pharmacy work? Are you separate from the rest of pharmacy and the IDN, or how does that work?
1: I'd say it's a partnership. We do report through the Department of Pharmacy, but it's a pretty close relationship between pharmacy and the Cancer Institute to develop the resources from a pharmacy perspective.
0: Thinking about drug selection, you mentioned earlier formularies and pathways and such. Which of these do you actually have in place right now? Do you have, for instance, a formulary that extends across the whole network?
1: We do. We have a system-wide
0: formulary. And is that a closed formulary? It is. And when we say closed, does that mean that you may restrict to just one or two cancer drugs out of a class where you might have, say, four cancer drugs?
1: And that's a possibility, yes. And so essentially, if it's non-formulary, it's not generally going to be stocked in any of our pharmacy locations. There is an exceptions process, but it's essentially not available. How
0: does that play out in detail? So for instance, for breast cancer, we have the cdk four sixes. Would you have all three of those that are approved on your formulary right now?
1: So I will say that on the oral side, it's a little different from a formulary perspective. A lot of the formulary is driven through the infusible space and the inpatient space. So uh, from a formulary perspective, we don't highly regulate the oral products. That would be within side of pathway or a guideline.
0: Okay. So you would have all of the PARP inhibitors or all the CDK4-6s on the oral formulary? Correct. Do you have a pathway for all diseases or just certain tumor types?
1: I would say we have pathways for pretty much every disease that are in development. Finalized product it's probably about half of the tumor types, but pretty much every other disease space has something in development.
0: What goals are you really seeking to address using the formula and the pathways? I think a lot of it is reducing the variation in care across
1: a high multitude of sites and trying to give the patient a very similar experience from a, a treatment perspective, regardless of which site they go to be treated that. your big piece is alignment. A lot of our regional sites treat 30, 40, 50 different tumor types compared to the largest academic center where you have specialists, and so it helps those providers in regional locations, I think, stay up to date on what maybe key opinion leaders are doing from a protocol perspective.
0: Thinking about how you've structured this, do you work with VIA or McKesson, for instance, or do you have an internal path development organization? Uh, These are internally developed. And how is that structured? Is this in the pharmacy department primary or the uh, Department of Oncology?
1: Mostly out of the Cancer Institute through
0: program managers and kind of continuous improvement teams that heads that up. And when you say out of the Cancer Institute, so is there a formal internal consulting group, for instance, or program management group that heads this up?
1: No, it's all internal project managers. So the whole process, we don't really utilize any external stakeholders.
0: Is there a special group that focuses just on this program management? Yes, there is. And are those people clinical, for instance, pharmacists, RNs, or MDs, or are they business-type people?
1: I'd say it's more on the administrative side.
0: So the folks who are running the project, are these business or administrative people? And if they are administrative, do they tend to be MBAs or finance people?
1: I would say usually with some advanced business healthcare type of degree master's in maybe public health or a fellowship in that piece. So kind of a mix of business plus healthcare, but usually
0: not a clinician in their prior experience. And is this a designated group of people who re- just work within the Cancer Institute? Correct, it is. And who do they report up to?
1: We have a variety of continuous improvement and project managers for other reasons. And so they're part of that group from reporting perspective.
0: But probably one way or another, they report up to quality? Yeah, it's a very similar group. That's correct. As these groups facilitate the pathway development, is this occurring completely at the system level, or do you incorporate advice and feedback from people who are not necessarily within the academic medical center?
1: There's a review process,
0: and it's probably first
1: developed through key opinion leaders at the academic medical center. That's a multidisciplinary group of physicians, pharmacists, advanced practice providers, and they may come up with a first revision, and then there's reviewers from multiple sites across the IDN, and they can provide feedback about decisions, the algorithm, they can ask questions, and change the care path if we feel it's necessary.
0: It sounds though the overall approach, however, tends to be pretty centralized, where at least the first draft really comes out of the work of a group within the core academic medical center. Correct. In terms of developing the monograph or the information that's brought to bear during this development process, who is it that's responsible for that? Is it the drug information group or oncology pharmacy or some other organization?
1: It's usually a combination of the drug information team as well as the oncology pharmacy group. We usually have a number of different folks from the oncology pharmacy team who work with drug information to come up with final
0: monograph to be presented. Are those folks all oncology pharmacy focused?
1: The drug information team is not, they more generalists, I would say, but the pharmacists themselves are all oncology pharmacy.
0: Okay. Do you bring in any other consultative groups at that point, for instance, health economics or science people?
1: So we do have what I'll call consultants, and that would be the finance team from a reimbursement perspective. And we do have pharmacoeconomic resources that we might look at cost effectiveness then we would consult with the MD as well, whoever requested the product as well as the disease team to determine their thoughts on the product as well as where they might align it inside a pathway.
0: So if we were to outline this process of how you go about developing a pathway from start to finish, how would you first identify the need for a pathway? I mean, would this be, for instance, at the level of a class of drugs or at the level of a tumor or a subpopulation based on genetic mutation? It's
1: usually going to be based upon
0: disease types.
1: Okay. And it may be based upon stage as well. It's usually our categories start from there.
0: Okay. And who initiates the development of the pathway?
1: It's actually kicked off by one of the project managers for that team. And they would then identify usually a, a champion for that pathway, usually a position within the group that may specialize in whatever tumor type we're talking through to kind of start the process off or at least guide it through the
0: process. So you have a program manager kicking this off, identifying the KOL. At that point, then, what does the KOL do? Work with the project manager, bring a team together? How do they move forward?
1: They may start with some background information on the disease space, mapping out maybe some of their thoughts on the treatment algorithm, reviewing primary literature, NCCN guidelines, ASCO guidelines. And then they usually bring that back to the other physicians inside the disease team and the pharmacists in that disease team.
0: So you may have all the pharmacists and the physicians who are involved in treating a particular tumor type, let's say pancreatic, would be brought in to work with this team. Is that correct? Yep, that is correct. Okay. And in the process of gathering information, you mentioned ASCO guidelines. Do you ever look at some of the assessments published by ICER or NICE or any of those institutions?
1: We're trying to bring those in more as conversation pieces. I would not say that we've used ICER or, or NICE in any of the care path discussions. We've tried to talk through total cost of care or cost effectiveness, but not in any formal type of manner and not in every pathway. But We try to insert a cost into the discussion as well, and it depends on the space, sometimes static disease versus non-metastatic, and maybe there's some more weight in certain areas. Our goal has been to try to make it a conversation point. And that's been what I've been trying to insert into these discussions because it's a fairly foreign concept to most of the physicians about the basics of pharmacoeconomics.
0: And so trying to get them aware
1: of what language we're trying to talk through.
0: When you say it's a, an unusual concept to them, are you speaking about a formal HOR metric dollars per quality, or do you mean just the whole notion of considering cost?
1: I would say more the fundamentals of pharmacoeconomic study, so quality years uh, the technical terms inside of there about what's a number for cost effectiveness per year, you know, 150,000 or something like that. The concept of cost, I think we are comfortable with, but what do you do when you have to compare two regimens that maybe the efficacy differs a little bit and the cost differs a little bit? That's where I find we struggle.
0: Are there any classes that are particularly problematic, for instance, PD-1s or PARP or cdk 46s where that actually might be more important than other classes?
1: I think we're getting closer with the PD-1 category in the essentially me-too-type drugs where we have a lot of options. At some point, I think they'll have very similar indications. And so I think we're getting there, but not there yet. But I think that's a setup. Biosimilars is also another area like that too, where I think we'll be discussing it more.
0: We say you might be discussing more with biosimilars. Can you give me an example of how that might work? In the next year, we're
1: gonna have quite a few more biosimilars in that therapeutic space, avastin, herceptin, rituximab. And we also have some sub Q products in that space that maybe provide some advantage that may come with the cost for the patient. And how do you determine what is the most important factor? Is it patient convenience? Is it overall cost? I just see that conversation being one that we're going to have in the next 6 to 12 months.
0: And getting back to the process, your program manager has identified the KOL or the champion. You've pulled the disease team together. You've gathered information. You've developed an assessment of some kind. Then how do you actually make the final choice? Are you narrowing down to just two or three choices in your pathway, or do you allow four or five?
1: I find that it depends on whether... It's frontline kind of type of therapy versus third or fourth line metastatic therapy. But generally, we have an algorithm. We have one choice that's a preferred option, maybe other options for clinical reasons. But it's rare that you would have a NCCN type of menu of 10 options and you can pick one. There's
0: usually a solidified choice. So you would try to drive to one best choice? Yes, yeah, that has been the goal. How often do you actually achieve that goal? Do you typically end up with one or do you more frequently end up with, say, two?
1: I would say it's pretty typical that we have only one option
0: in most of the pathways once they are published. Okay. And then once you actually have developed the pathway, how do you actually implement that? Is that through the EMR? It's both through the EMR as
1: well as informational pathway guide. It's about making sure that on pathway protocols are available in the EMR as well as information is available in the EMR to guide you through the care path process. It's not an automated or smart process. You, you pull up a patient and it automatically tells you, here's the care path choice.
0: It's still an active decision that has to be made by the provider. So if I'm a provider and I have a, let's say for the sake of argument, a breast cancer patient, HER2 negative, HR positive, I'm prescribing treatment for that patient. Can you walk me through what the doctor sees and what kinds of information are provided to the doctor as they're making their choice? This is an interesting example because we do have a pilot that
1: we're trying in the breast cancer group. The usual process would be that you would find the care path, identify the patient's clinical, either lab parameters or hormone status. You would just determine which regimen you should pick, and you would pick that regimen from the EMR. We're working on some information where you could actually click. Some information you could identify their HER2 status, their hormone receptor status, their stage, and the EMR would present you with the care path option. We're trying to find some ways to make that the most common way that a provider finds a care path protocol
0: in the EMR. And right now does the doctor have to go to a separate IT system to see the care paths?
1: Correct. They would have There's a link in the EMR to the pathway and the provider has to click on that, read that, and then identify in the EMR, which protocol they want.
0: So they have to go out of the screen back to the original screen and then pick among the options they see on that screen? Correct. So your pathway may have one option, but when the doctor's actually picking the treatment, the doctor may see three or four options or three or four alternative therapies.
1: Yeah, and it all depends on what they search for. If they're searching on a drug or a synonym, you're going to get
0: multiple options.
1: So, yeah, they can get multitude of choices.
0: At this point, is any of those choices highlighted? Do you have a little gold star next to it, for instance, if it's the preferred?
1: And not at this point. We've talked through identifying with this hair path, something, an asterisk, but we don't have anything in place right now.
0: Okay. And that then sounds like that's what your pilot in breast cancer is about. Correct. Right. So with the pilot, then the doctor sends some information about the patient and then is presented with the recommended care path? Exactly. And that care path would specify the drug treatment, and would it also create an order set?
1: Yes, they could click right there to apply the protocol to the patient.
0: Okay. And there's no more work on their part once they've clicked that box?
1: Correct. They would have to double-check the orders, sign the orders, but it's essentially ready to go.
0: So overall, as you think about the process, how you get from determining a need to actually rolling out a care path into your IT system, how would you describe that right now? Is that pretty well-tuned, efficient system, or are there some challenges you have to face with this? We have a clear process for how that happens
1: and who has to validate it. It can take two to three weeks depending on whether or not all of the electronic files are available in the EMR, but it takes usually a few weeks to go through all the validations.
0: And how about the processes upstream of the IT, for instance, once the project man or program managers start on the process, how long does it take you to get to the point where you're ready to go to IT?
1: Usually about a week or two. That process is not difficult to identify the regimen and the reference.
0: It's more so the work in the EMR itself. Oh, okay. So the actual development of the pathways seems like it's pretty efficient and pretty quick.
1: The identification of the regimen is quick. I guess it does longer to come up with the final version of the care path, but usually they will let us know that we have a care path decision. We'd like to make sure this protocol is available, and that kicks it off for us. We don't wait for the finalized care path to make the protocol.
0: And at what point in the process do they seek buy-in from the physicians who were not directly involved in the development?
1: It's usually once they have first draft,
0: and that's once they feel that they have a pretty good algorithm
1: for how the patient should be treated. They will send that out to the review group and usually ask for maybe one to two weeks of review time.
0: So thinking about how this works to date, what would you say is working well with your process right now?
1: I think it's an evidence-based process,
0: and there's multiple safety
1: checks along the way to make sure that regimens are built appropriately and as requested by the provider. So both of those things work well.
0: You've used the term, now request by a provider a couple of times. Is this, or one, if your rank and file physicians may request to have a pathway looked at or a new drug inserted, or are you using the term some other way?
1: No, that would be any request that comes through has to be approved, usually by that disease team, before it gets built. And at that point, we would compare it to the care path and, and try to make decisions on
0: do we really need this
1: protocol or not.
0: How often do you see situations where, for instance, you might have a discussion between whether you should be using rituxin, or Goziva for leukemia. Are there philosophical-type discussions like that? Or how would you deal with a situation where you may have a new product supplanting an old standard that everyone's comfortable with? And do you see resistance to the new standard? The way that goes
1: is a multidisciplinary discussion at disease group to determine do we think the new evidence is superior to whatever the standard of care is and if it is, then we move forward with adopting that and adding it to the care path.
0: How often do you actually review your pathways and reconsider based upon either RWE or additional trial data?
1: I'd say it's a pretty ongoing process. If new data emerges. Oh. Uh, we would review it at that point. It's pretty up to date. It, it can take a while to get the final care path updated, but at least the decision
0: usually gets made quarterly. Yeah, at what point do payer preferences come into this?
1: We try to look at the reimbursement perspective to determine either from a Medicare perspective, is it going to be able? That can be difficult. Sometimes you don't know until you submit that prior authorization or pre-cert. So we try to anticipate it, but at least on the commercial side, it may be difficult. We may look for advice from the manufacturer, from their reimbursement access team to see what they're hearing from a payment perspective as well.
0: A few weeks ago, I was at ASCO practice down in San Diego, and somebody from United Healthcare said they would be releasing their own pathway programs early next year. And she was very clear that they actually hadn't considered any outside views or existing pathways as they developed theirs. So they're doing what they think is best from their perspective. When you see payers with their own pathway programs, does this create attention for your physicians or do you simply allow the physician to go with the payer and ignore your pathway?
1: we try to prefer our pathways wherever possible. Usually the pathways that I've seen available are either very broad or the downside of not following them still doesn't mean that you're going to get a rejection or you can't use the product, but maybe the process isn't as efficient. So I think we would prefer that the providers get to make the decision on what therapy is being used for a patient compared to a payer.
0: And you would prefer your providers to use your pathway. Correct. We talked about what was working well. What would you think needs to work better in terms of how you are developing and implementing your pathways?
1: So, I think the two big things are related to the speed of new data coming out. I think it's hard to keep up internally, even with a lot of resources. There's a lot of data coming out among a lot of different diseases. And so, how do you keep up and update pathways and update the EMR. I see that as one of the biggest challenges moving forward of an internal system. And then the second is just not integration into the EMR. So not having an automated way or a better way to integrate care path decisions for the provider and essentially still making it a, a manual process.
0: So you've mentioned a few moments ago that when you are looking at a pathway, you may reach out to industry representatives and ask what they know about reimbursement is there any other type of information or data you might incorporate from industry to do assessment or you update a pathway?
1: I still ask for health economic HUR type of data, seeing what they have from that perspective, any real world evidence, payer data, as well as access solutions are my usual questions for manufacturers.
0: Would access solutions be a factor in determining which of two alternatives you might pick for a pathway?
1: Yeah. One company has a copay program, patient assistance program,
0: replacement program, and everything else is equal, that would be a decision point. And how does H.O.R. enter this? You mentioned earlier you're actually trying to train your physicians to be conversant with some of the H.O.R. terminology, but do you, for instance, from industry look budget impact models or cost-effectiveness analysis,
1: yeah, I always ask the manufacturers if they have a budget impact model or any cost-effective data. I don't find it as useful for formulary decisions. I find it a little more useful for pathway, but we're also involved in alternative payment program. So that's where I've been focused recently and seeing what kind of decisions we might be able to make to reduce total cost of care.
0: So when you think about total cost of care there, you mean not just the actual agent, but also all the downstream or associated costs?
1: Yeah, especially if we can offset hospital admissions, decrease direct overall costs, or have a, a treatment-free period. So just trying to see where the
0: benefit is other than just the drug cost itself. Are you part of the Oncology Care Model? We are. Have there been any major lessons or learnings you've drawn out of all the data that's come along with that pilot?
1: I think it's a lot of data to synthesize especially to synthesize in a way that can be used by the providers and be actionable. And so we focused mostly in supportive care space to try to make some decisions about decreasing total cost of care. We have not drifted into the therapeutic space yet. I think at some point that's going to come up, but most of our goals have been reducing supportive care
0: costs. Have there been any surprises about the experience of your patients and the types and the volume they're receiving?
1: I think it's been interesting to look at
0: different disease
1: groups and see where volume is coming from, where total cost is coming from, from a disease state perspective. So I think that has been probably the most interesting piece. And just being able to drill down and compare ourselves to others from an actual cost per member has also been interesting, but it has not been very actionable at this point.
0: Were there any major discoveries or surprises that came from comparing yourself to other organizations?
1: I think the biggest thing was related to just disease spaces. So sometimes disease spaces with smaller number of patients, potentially things like multiple myeloma was driving a lot of our costs. We didn't always have visibility into oral costs, so part D costs. So having that was also a little surprising from my perspective, but helpful in the end
0: since we've wandered into the value-based reimbursement area, thinking about next year and what's happening in the oncology landscape, what are the changes you see in the landscape that you view as being most dynamic for, say, 2020, 2021?
1: I think probably what I'm watching closely is for key therapy and the ability for that to hit new populations of patients and how to manage that from both a cost and a resource perspective. And then just for all costs of new therapies, a huge proportion of our OCM spend is just drug costs. And can we really drive down costs that much with new drugs being approved with higher prices? And so thinking through that as well.
0: Have you had any examples in the last year or two where as you're considering a new drug for a pathway position that you've decided not to move with it based on what you see as being the cost effectiveness of it? The- product?
1: I think one of the examples would be rintuximab in upfront potions therapy and comparing that to other really standard of care. That was one of the areas where we decided not to utilize a new therapy that may have some benefit, but adds quite a bit of cost and toxicity. So that's one that sticks out.
0: So you looked at that case and maybe the data was somewhat better, but you decided that whatever the gain was clinically, it wasn't worth the associated side effects and the cost. Correct. Is that a difficult decision for your group to make?
1: I think it is. Generally in oncology, if a therapy adds even a few months of three-year overall survival, we generally adopt it. And so I think that's been very difficult.
0: How have other changes in the environment made a difference to you? you facing issues such as provider burnout or pushback from employer groups in your market?
1: I think some of the biggest challenges is related to payer involvement, payer mandates of certain products, especially in the biosimilar space, even payer mandated pathways and how far they will go with that. Keeping up with just the amount of documentation that's needed, you mentioned burnout from both a provider, a pharmacist, even his providers, how do we prevent that has been a challenge. And then I would say potentially side of care, so folks wanting to treat their patients at other locations when we would prefer to own the whole patient experience.
0: How would that work? You're a very comprehensive IDN. Would a physician want to refer a patient to a side of care outside of your institution or outside of your IDN? So it has
1: not happened in oncology yet, but the way it would work is simply if they wanted to provide Herceptin to the patient, the payer would say they can have Perceptin, but they need to go to infusion center X and some other location. You need to go to home infusion. So some type of other area than our treatment centers
0: would be something I've seen proposed and discussed. So this would be driven by a payer trying to find a less expensive solution. Correct. Okay. And then thinking back again to 2020 in particular, if you had a magic wand and you could wave it and accomplish one or two, goals next year, what would those be? I think further evolution of care path. I
1: mentioned that we do not have them live in all disease spaces. I think it would also be nice to have some metrics involved in monitoring some type of care path adherence as well, something that we're not doing. And then I would say continuing to try to focus on treating patients in the ambulatory environment, especially with things like CAR-T, a lot of opportunities to hopefully treat patients in the ambulatory setting, rather than than
0: inpatient. One quick follow-up. So you mentioned monitoring care paths. So if right now, you're not measuring your physicians' compliance with the care pathways. Is that correct?
1: Some of them have some quality metrics. You may have some. Things like admissions to the hospital or number of return physician visits for hydration, but nothing that I can say from a high level based on how often they're following the care path. I don't have any access or insight into that piece, nor is there any real process for when a provider truly doesn't follow a care
0: path. So this doesn't play into their compensation or their performance review at all. So anything you do there would be a retrospective analysis. Correct. Thanks for a great discussion. And thanks to all of our listeners for their continuing support of Proximity's research program. We're always happy to respond to your questions or suggestions, so please don't hesitate to reach out to Steve Clark or me, Lee Blancett. Thank you. Goodbye.